We are uh, finishing our series, our short series on the book of Psalms this morning, uh, Words for the Way. And uh, if, if you haven't been around, we've been, we've been talking for the last uh, three to four weeks uh, about the gift that God has given us in the book of Psalms. And then we see he's given us words for the way, words for our spiritual journey. Uh, he's given us words for when we've done wrong. That was Psalm 51, also known as words for waking up in Vegas. He's also given us words for when we've been wronged. Psalm 10, also known as words for our anger. And he's given us words for when everything seems wrong. And that was what we looked at last week, Psalm 88 also known as words for the darkness. But this morning, we're going to talk about one that doesn't get a lot of attention. And this is words for when you don't know what's wrong. This is words for our restlessness. And we're going to be meditating on a very short psalm. It's only three verses, and it's one that's often overlooked. It's Psalm 131. And as the great uh, Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, the shortest of psalms sometimes take the longest to learn. And this is a psalm that it will take a lifetime to learn. And I just want to note up front that these words are aspirational. They are given to us for when we're restless inside and we don't know what's wrong. So with that in mind, would you give your attention to the reading of God's word? Psalm 10. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you be with us this morning? Would you do what you've promised? And that is whenever two or three are gathered in your name, uh, you, you pledge to be present. So we ask that you would work through your word and that you would work it into our hearts. That we might have that experience of a calm and quieted soul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Psalm uh, 131, which we're looking at this morning, is part of a, a collection of psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And these, like maybe the easiest way to think about it is the Psalms of Ascent that go from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. They're like a brochure at a conference, right, that gives you all the words you're going to sing uh, that week. Because the Israelites would sing these psalms as they were marching to Jerusalem for a festival. And it helped prepare them to celebrate, but more importantly, it helped recenter them on God and his character and his promises. And this particular one is written by King David, someone who had experienced a whole lot of restlessness in his life. And we get to eavesdrop in on him make, talking to God in, in this moment of inward composure. And the last verse tells us that he wrote this to lead us into that same composure. Because he stops talking to God and he starts talking to us. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And this psalm is all about rest for restless souls. Now I want to I talk for a few minutes about our experience of restlessness. Because 
w- there's a lot of different ways that we describe it. You know, sometimes we just say things like, I'm just really stressed right now. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of factors that are, that are contributing to that, but we, we, we sometimes struggle to pinpoint it exactly. Other times we're experiencing FOMO. We're worried that we're missing out on something great. And we're just looking all over the place to make sure we don't miss out on something that might be really important to us. And recently I heard the phrase, the arrival fallacy. Have you heard of that one? <laughs> the thing that like knots you up inside out of the fear that when you get what you want, it won't be satisfying or the experience of getting what you want and it doesn't satisfy. We're restless. But maybe our favorite word for it is the word anxiety. And sometimes we, we're anxious and we don't know exactly why. Uh, the late Tim Keller uh, said it like this. If fear is a thunderstorm, anxiety is a constant cold drizzle. It's like a generalized worry that just lingers over our lives. And you know what another word uh, that we use to describe this experience is? It's the word overwhelmed. We feel overwhelmed and we can't quite put our finger on what the source of it is. Uh, about 20 years ago, uh, James Fallows wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly. And uh, he, he tries to describe the modern condition And I want you to listen carefully to this. And I want you to think, imagine if he was writing this today. But this is what he wrote. The modern condition is to be overwhelmed by everything. The typical modern day is a fog of constantly accumulating open-ended obligations with little barrier between the personal and the professional and few clear signals that you are actually done. The anxiety is compounded by a foible of the human mind. It can't remember And it can't forget. No one can possibly remember all the promises, deadlines, and other shoulds of personal and occupational life. But perversely, the brain also can't forget. At some deep and not very efficient level, it is always stewing about the things you should have done but haven't. And it tends to remind you of them at the worst time, typically 3 a.m., Anxiety about undone but nagging tasks is so profound that it creates an all-pervasive stress factor whose source can't be pinpointed. Most professional people are so accustomed to this pressure, they can barely imagine its absence. Can you imagine if he was writing that today? (laughs) It's not gotten better. And as a matter of fact, many of us live in a fog of Emotional, physical, psychological, spiritual exhaustion. And sometimes that fog is so thick, we are blind to how we are wearing down and falling apart. God wants to speak rest into the restlessness of our lives. And Psalm 131 is a testimony of a man who found rest for his restless soul. And what I want to do is I want to break this down into three points. And uh, see if we can unpack what is, what is here in this psalm for us. And, and here's the first point. Rest is a spiritual condition, not a circumstantial one. Rest is a spiritual condition, not a circumstantial one. And this is important for us because we tend to think we will find rest when we find the right situation. The right job, the right work-life balance, the right neighborhood to live in, the right school for our kids to attend, the right diet, the right exercise routine, the right spouse. But David says true rest is a spiritual condition, 
not a fruit of our circumstances. And he doesn't define the rest for us. He describes it and illustrates it. Here's his description. True rest is a calm and quieted soul. A calm and quieted soul. It is is possible to have an inward peace, an inward composure, a calm and quieted soul, even when everything is chaos around you. It is possible to have real rest when everything around is restless. That's his description, a calm and quiet soul. But here's the illustration he uses. And you've got to love this. Like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. Now, I find that image very powerful because a weaned child resting on its mother's lap is this tender image of contentment. Now, maybe some of you have not had the experience of watching the process of weaning. Maybe some of you are in the midst of it right now. But a nursing child is always panicky and fussy when hungry, worried it's not going to get what it needs. And as it gets closer to the mother's breast, you just see the kicking and the flailing and the screaming all about. And nothing is going to satisfy. Not until it gets what it wants. And by the way... uh, from, from what we, we know of, of the ancient world, Jewish mothers in antiquity would often nurse till three or four years of age. So imagine the fussing of a two to three-year-old on his mother's lap. That's what's in David's mind here. But a weaned child, one that has learned to take in solid foods, is able to be calm and content in mom's lap, confident in her care, comforted by her presence. Let me put it like this. An unweaned child will cry and scream until it gets what it's want. it wants, mom's milk. But a weaned child can be satisfied with mom herself, can be content being on her lap, in her arms, in her presence. Not there for lunch, but there for her and to experience her love. Now, if we take this description... And this illustration, and we put them together, what do they tell us about the nature of true rest? The kind of rest that David's talking about. Well, they tell us two things. One is real rest is not rooted in our circumstances, but in a relationship with God. Circumstances can change in a millisecond. We all know this. One phone call, one car accident, one positive Uh, biopsy result for cancer, one bad meeting with your advisor or supervisor, one date that you discover was your last with this person, and you go to pieces. Because circumstances are too fragile to provide any lasting rest. And you feel the fragility even when nothing's falling apart. But what David is saying is, even when everything is falling apart, it's possible to have real rest. Now, I want to be clear here for a second so this isn't confusing. This doesn't mean we ignore our circumstances. They they matter. They impact us. Real rest is not resignation. And, you know, some of us, we're well-practiced in this. Just lower your expectations. Decide to be okay with whatever life throws throws at you. You know people like this. Some of you are people like this. And it creates this detachment from real living. That isn't real rest. But when you read the Psalms, you find people crying out for deliverance, crying out for help, 
crying out for rescue. And not only is that fine, it is vital. But this psalm and many other psalms like it tell us that it is possible to do that with an inner peace and poise. There were things that David no doubt desired to be different. But even when they remained the same, he somehow found real rest. Because real rest is a spiritual condition, not a circumstantial one. And here's the other implication of this. Real rest is something you grow into. It's not something that comes naturally. See, on the one hand, David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. He's an active agent in this process. He doesn't say, I'm just a calm person. Like, be like me. Or don't you wish you were like me? He doesn't say, I scored steady on my Myers-Briggs test. He doesn't say, I'm an Enneagram 9, right? This, this is easy for me. It doesn't come naturally or automatically. He had to work at it. But this is so important. On the other hand, he's recognizing he, he's not in the driver's seat in this process. Because weaning is a process initiated by another. And weaning begins with a battle of wills. Have you ever considered how God might be weaning you right now? How he might be taking away from you some things that you thought you had to have because he wants you to understand where real rest is found. When God is weaning you, you have to remember it is ultimately for your rest. It's difficult to experience, yes, but the goal is composure and peace that is not going up and down with how life is going all around you. Real rest is a spiritual condition, not a circumstantial one. That's the first thing. But here's the second point. Restlessness, then, is a spiritual disorder, not just a physical one. And hear me clearly, right? We're, we're not going to ignore biology. We're not going to ignore physiology. We are bodies and they do matter. And you do not need to be ashamed before God or in the church community for any help that you receive to deal with physiological or biological or chemical problems with your body. But we are souls too. And all the attention that we give to our bodies won't do us any ultimate good. If we ignore our souls, if the true rest that David is talking about is a spiritual condition, then so also is the restlessness, which means restlessness at its core is a spiritual disorder. And I want us to look at some of the sources that David highlights for us, because David makes three statements in verse one that tell us where he was discovering his restlessness was coming from. And dealing with these three things was part of how he quieted and calmed his restless soul. What are those three things? You ready? A proud heart, haughty eyes, and a preoccupation with things outside our control and understanding. So let's unpack each of those. The first cause, and it's often hidden, of our restlessness is pride. When David says, my heart is not lifted up, that's a phrase that if you put it in reverse, my heart is lifted up. That means to be proud. And what he's saying is, God, I have seen how self-absorbed I am and I'm humbled by it. Because you know what a proud heart does? It wraps the entirety of our lives up in self-concern. You make life all about you and you become consumed with getting your way all the time. And when you don't, you feel ripped off. 
because you deserve better. Would you be willing to consider the possibility that much of our restlessness is rooted in a proud heart? And we don't even see it. I mean, why does, why does criticism unsettle us so much? Because it wounds our pride. Right? Why, why do we get so rattled when life doesn't go according to plan, our plan, when it doesn't go our way? Because we pridefully believe that we know the way life should go. And we know what is best. And when we make life all about ourselves, you know what we discover? We are noisy and restless inside. Because the proud heart is never at rest. And the proud heart is always on trial. And that's the second thing. The second thing David mentions is competition. Because when your proud heart is on trial, you obsessively compete with others. When David says, my eyes are not raised too high, it's a phrase that in the Hebrew is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes. And you know what haughty eyes do? They look at other people with either envy or contempt. And what David is saying before the Lord is, Lord, I recognize how I look at others and I'm humbled by it. See, when you look at people with haughty eyes, what you see is a rival. And you're in competition and you feel the need to be better than them. You can't stand them getting ahead of you, getting in front of you or getting the attention that you so desperately desire. You know, Leonard Bernstein, the famous uh, orchestra conductor, was once asked by a, a, an admirer, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And you know what his answer was? Second fiddle. L- l- listen, he said, second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that's a problem. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. So much of our restlessness is rooted in obsessive competition with others. The need to be number one. The great uh, philosopher, Ricky Bobby, said, if you ain't first, you're last. (laughs) And is that not the culture of Silicon Valley? No one wants to be number two. Everyone wants to be number one. Academically, socially, like you name it. And even if you are number one for a season, you're always on trial. You need to make your case that you're still better. You're still more significant. You're still more important. You're still more deserving than those you think are beneath you. You know what? Haughty eyes make restless hearts. And here's the third thing. We are restless because we think we can control the uncontrollable, do the undoable, and understand what is beyond our reach. When David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, he's not saying, like, I'm not thinking big thoughts or I'm not uh, looking at wonderful things. What he's saying is, I've had to come to grips with my limitations. There are things I cannot control, things I cannot do, things that I cannot understand, and I've got to be okay with that. Control freaks have very busy hearts. Laboring under the delusion that they can manage life by planning and preparing, by controlling what can't be controlled, by knowing what can't be known. And then life, it hits you right in the face. If you don't accept that there are things you can't control, things you can't do, things you can't understand, restlessness will eat you alive from the inside out. 
There are things that God allows to happen in our lives that leave us asking why. And that is totally okay. The Psalms are filled with that question. We can ask, but what we can't demand is that we get a satisfying answer right now in every way that we want. Some stuff is God's business alone. And who are we to even say that we could understand it if he told us? Remember the book of Habakkuk? When Habakkuk is screaming out to God and God says, Habakkuk, hold up a second. I'm up to something you wouldn't even believe if I told you. There are some things we have to leave in the hands of our Heavenly Father. You know, Corey Ten Boom in her book, The Hiding Place, tells a story about a time when she was a little girl. And she was traveling, uh, I think, from Amsterdam to Harlem on a train with her father. And she came across this poem that had the word sex sin amongst its line. And so she sat by her dad and she said, Dad, what is sex sin? And he turned to look at me. This is what she writes, as he always did when answering a question. But to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case from the rack over our heads, set it on the floor. And he said, will you carry it off the train, Corey? I stood up. I tugged at it. It was crammed with watches and spare parts he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. And Corey Tim Boone writes, I was satisfied, more than satisfied. I was at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions. But for now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. There are things we must leave in our father's keeping. Things we can't control or do or even understand. And if we're not able to do that, we will never know true and lasting rest. Now, I want you to think about this. What do a proud heart, haughty eyes, and a preoccupation with things too great for us have in common? This is what they have in common. Our self is at the center of the universe. I want you to imagine that this psalm said exactly the opposite of what, what it actually says. How would it sound? And uh, this isn't original to me. I, I got this from David Pallison. And he, he says this is what the, the psalm would sound like if it said exactly the opposite. O oh self, my heart is proud, my eyes are haughty, and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally, like a hungry infant fussing on its mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. David is saying, God, my heart has been noisy and restless, but I am humbling myself before you, putting you instead of me at the center of reality. David's not saying, I finally scrubbed myself clean of all my pride and ego. What he's saying is, I'm recognizing you're in control, not me. You're at the center of the universe, not me. And I'm discovering that that is bringing me true and lasting rest. And that leads us to the third thing, which is true and lasting rest only comes through hoping in the Lord. 
Notice the end of the psalm. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hoping in the Lord brings rest to restless hearts. Now, I know that that phrase for some of you, it rings hollow. It sounds cliche. It feels formulaic even. But hope is a richer word than many of us realize. Your, your hope is what you build your life on, depend on, trust as your ultimate good. And here's the thing, Christian or not, you're already hoping in something. And you want to know what it is? It's what fills the blank in this question. I will have rest when? I will have rest when I get married. I will have rest when I make enough to live comfortably in Silicon Valley. I will have rest when I've finally proved myself to my parents. I will have rest when I'm recognized for my achievements. I will have rest when I'm able to get out of this season. But hoping in the Lord is about trusting in his goodness and finding your greatest joy in him. And you might be asking, how does that help me get what I want? And here's the answer. It doesn't. It doesn't unless what you want is him. Hoping in the Lord doesn't mean trust God will give you what you really want. It means trust God gives you what you really need always and forever, which is himself. And all that is necessary to really know him and enjoy him. And hoping in anything else will leave you noisy and restless inside. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like a fretful, self-absorbed, easily offended, obsessively competitive life. No rest, no inner composure, no peace and poise that lasts. See, the Bible never gives us a technique to manage our restlessness. It gives us a person to trust when life is falling apart at the seams. And even when it isn't hoping in the Lord brings rest to restless hearts. And it's so much better than hoping for any immediate outcome. You want to know why? Because we're not in control. We have no rights for things to go as we've planned. We don't need to be better than anyone else. But we can be sure that there is a God who loves us, is for us, and will give us everything we need to faithfully walk with him. Some of us have been looking for rest our whole lives. And everything we've done up to this point has really been with that hope that is just around the corner. But we were discovering that restlessness isn't going away. And it's something vacations haven't been able to solve and that success hasn't been able to diminish. And it's because we need a rest that is deeper. St. Augustine wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Real rest comes from learning to trust God's goodness no matter what. You trust his ways. You trust his timing. You trust his intentions. And you train your heart to rest in his love and faithfulness. How can we trust him like that? When you look at your life around you and you know, the disorder and the chaos and the hurt. And here's the beautiful thing. We have way better reasons 
than David did. Because in the fullness of time, the Apostle Paul writes, God sent forth his son into the chaos and the restlessness of life. And he said to those who would follow him, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And then he took our restlessness upon himself, living, dying, and rising again. The trial is over. There's nothing left to prove. He has done everything to secure your ultimate future. You know, that's a big hope. And what it means is it changes the way we relate to our little hopes. I hope I get married, but marriage is not my hope. I hope I have kids, but having kids is not my hope. I hope I beat this cancer, but beating cancer is not my hope. My hope is Jesus. My hope is his love. My hope is resurrection life with him forever, period, exclamation point, times a thousand. And it's the only hope that won't disappoint. Now, maybe you've had this experience in worship. Maybe you had it this morning of noticing the words that you were singing and you just stopped in the middle of a song because you don't think you really mean them. And maybe some of you are feeling that way about Psalm 131. I know I have. Where you say, as you look at it, I don't know if I can pray this. I don't know if I can sing this because this is not really how I feel right now. I don't feel quiet and calm inside. My pride is alive and kicking. My eyes are haughty and I am trying to control the uncontrollable and do the undoable. And let me just say, this is exactly why God gave us these words. Because they're not there to just help us express ourselves. They are help to guide us and shape us and form us and our desires. Maybe you're hearing all this and saying, I'm just not good at this. Finding my rest in Jesus, putting my hope in God. And you know what? We say this all the time here, but if you want to be good at something, you got to be willing to be bad at it first. If you want to be good at math, you got to be bad at it first. If you want to get good at snowboarding, right? You're going to have to fall on your bottom so many times. If you want to be, if you want to be good at violin, you got to be horrible at it for years. One of the worst sounds on planet earth is your next door neighbor who's in second grade learning how to play the violin. And I am positive that hell will be filled with that sound, right? (laughs) Sanctification is the process of growing from being terrible at putting your hope in God and finding your rest in Jesus into someone for whom it becomes second nature. How does that happen? By doing it again and again and again. We've been talking the past four weeks about the words God has given to us. And aren't they great words? Aren't they a gift? He's so good. He gives us words for when we've done wrong. He gives us words for when we've been wronged. He gives us words for when everything feels wrong. And he gives us words for when we don't know what's wrong. And it's so important because all of it is leading us to hope in the Lord. And it's not a trite thing. It can be done in the varied seasons and experiences of life, whatever it throws at you. And we have every reason to hope in God and his son, Jesus. Because as Psalm 130, right before this says, with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is plentiful redemption. Let us pray. God, we thank you for these words, your words given to us to pray back to you, to use on our hearts. And so we pray this morning that you would begin to heal deep inside the restlessness that we we all experience. 
And that you would help us to find our true rest in you. You are a father who loves us. You're an older brother who laid down his life for us. You're a spirit who indwells us. So would you bring the fullness of all that you are, your beauty, your glory, your majesty, and press it down into the depths of our soul that we might experience that inward composure, that inward poise, that rest that is a foretaste of a heavenly rest that goes on forever and ever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.